and welcome to another episode of SNESCAPADES, the chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library, four games at a time. We play them briefly, judge them harshly, and rank them, and that's pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. And today... We have games. We've we got a good mix of games here. We've got some interesting stuff. We got games. Uh, you like games, Steampunk Link? Do you like video games? I am pretty fond of games. I think that most people would say that Steampunk Link is a guy who likes video games, and um, I like some of the games we're talking about today. Yeah, me too. I like some of these games. Uh, some more than others. Which you know, that's pretty much always how it goes, though, isn't it? So, we're here in December 1991. We are. Uh, which is a new month, and y'all know what that means. Yeah, I think they do know what this means. We're going to kick it over to Newsy. It's December 1991. Some good news starts off the month as Muslim Shiites release journalist Terry Anderson, the last American hostage in Beirut after six and a half years. Michael Jackson dominates the top of the charts with Black or White, which will remain at number one for nearly two months. And Hook is released in theaters and ends up grossing nearly $120 million. Back to you, Emmy Zero and Steampunk Link. Thank you very much, Newsy. Ah, oh, man, you know, he's he's had a long break. He was rested. He sounded great there. Spot on. Yeah. So, uh, Hook, you know, that was a movie... Yeah, that was a movie. Um, I was going somewhere with that, but that's okay. Oh, go go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, that was a movie that I only saw a little bit of. I didn't see it in theaters. That's a movie I thought was remembered more fondly than it seems to actually be. Yeah, it's interesting to me because that was one of the earliest movies I can personally remember disliking. Oh, wow. I was excited to see that movie in a theater, and I did see it in a theater, and when I was like five or six or whatever and uh i did not enjoy it at all and then your parents were like up oh, she's gonna talk about video games on a podcast someday critically i'll bet that's right that's exactly how it happened even though podcasts did not exist yet <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story <laughs> yep. so i did see hook just the one time i have never really rewatched it i've seen like little bits of it here and there but it's uh steven spielberg movie Robin Williams as an adult Peter Pan, and yeah, it's got all of the whimsy that entails. We've got Tinkerbell, played by, um, oh god, how am I spacing on her name right now? Julia Roberts? Was that it? Possibly. I wanted to say Julia Roberts. I think it was Julia Roberts. I will uh, double check that, and if I was wrong, I will just remove all of that from the recording in post so that nobody knows I didn't Yeah, know. no, it was a famous person, though. Well, either way. Uh, is a, is a very famous lady as Tinkerbell. So okay. Anyway, speaking of speaking of famous, we've got a really oh boy, famous yeah. game up here for now. Well, okay, it's it's. Does anyone really remember this game? I you don't think? know. I kind of remembered this game a tiny bit just because I think it was one of the first Super Nintendo games I played. But I don't think I remembered anything about it. Let's stop keeping the audience in suspense. We'll cue up a little bit of music there, the best part about this game, and then we'll get into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
It's Lagoon. Yeah, it's Lagoon. It is Lagoon. So this is a top-down action RPG. This game was published by Chemco, originally developed for the Sharp X68000 computer in Japan by Zoom Inc., who have also given us games like the unfortunately named Genocide series. I saw that, that that was their first game. I was like, ooh, no. And then they went on and made the... I think this was like their second one. They would also go on to create the Mr. Mosquito series, which I was shocked to learn is a series and not just one really, really strange game. Yeah, it's like of all the things to make make a whole franchise out of, Mr. Mosquito... Well, I think it's just two games, but I, I'm still that's baffled. More than, it's more than one, though, and that's that's pretty wild. <laughs> so this game was ported and published by Chemco for the Super NES. Chemco is a company that ported a lot of things, like the Mac Venture games to the NES. They're also the company behind the Crazy Castle series, which has had, I think, every cartoon license attached to it at one point or another. Yeah, Crazy Castle is pretty interesting as a property. Are we going to play any Crazy Castle games on this show? We are definitely going to play a Crazy Castle game, and I think it's the one Crazy Castle game that doesn't have a license attached to it. So it's not going to be like Bugs Bunny's Crazy Castle or Roger Rabbit's or ghostbusters no it's it's not going to be bugs or or garfield or woody woodpecker or any of those it's it's going to be their own ip i think uh kid clown oh good okay (laughs) anyway that's way off in the future though i'm pretty sure we're talking about lagoon which is uh like i said a top-down action adventure fantasy type game it features sprites and environmental elements that are drawn as if being viewed from an isometric perspective even though it's really top down so kind of think your zeldas and stuff like that though that's where the similarity ends, really. <laughs> this game is not Zelda. <laughs> the closest comparison to this game is the East series, which this game takes heavy influence from East. I honestly thought that there was going to be like some sort of connective DNA, either companies or developers or individual people working on the game between these two, but I don't think there are. I don't think there are. They share a lot in common from game design to the way the sprites look to to some extent the music even the ui design is very very similar but this is not an east game in some kind of important ways basically the first two east games which this is really heavily modeled on had a pretty unusual sort of combat system where you didn't actually have to press a button to attack you essentially hurt enemies by running into them with your sword and you kind of bounced off of them you kind of bumped into them it gave the games a, a feel that was very fast almost it made it almost feel more like a shoot 'em up in a weird way than you know something like a zelda as you might expect it to but the original version of Lagoon, the, the X6800 version, also featured that kind of combat. Of all the things that they, they kept from East, the one thing that the Super Nintendo version of Lagoon changes is that method of attack. You do actually have to hit a button here to swing a sword in front of you. And unfortunately, that's a big problem for this game because the whole game is really kind of designed around that bumping combat system. You essentially still do need to make contact with the enemies, with your sprite, to damage them. Uh, Your sword's tiny and it doesn't extend far at all. So essentially, you have to do the same thing you would have in the original version of the game, except now you also have to be pressing a button in the correct timing to 
hit the enemy instead of just getting hurt. And that makes the game really unnecessarily clumsy feeling to play and very difficult in ways that it surely was not originally intended to be. So from what I understand about Ys, which is uh, spelled Y-S if you're not familiar with that series, uh, I have not played any of those games yet, but we will be playing some of those too. Yeah, we'll be actually be playing one pretty soon. It's not going to be one that plays how I just described. We're going to be playing the one where they completely changed up the style of gameplay. I almost wonder if they were just worried that because American gamers were maybe so accustomed to games like Zelda that we would just assume there had to be an attack button. No, I'm pretty sure that's what they did. That makes so much sense to me. It's just a pretty unfortunate decision here. I realize we're starting out like talking about probably the most negative aspect of the game, but it it's pretty major, and it, it really, as somebody who has played the East games that do play that, play like this, it was a pretty difficult adjustment for me to make personally. I don't really know how that felt to you as somebody who was just coming into this cold, like without those sorts of expectations, but in practice, it was kind of hard for me to get my head around. It was still pretty difficult to get a handle on combat, uh, even not having the background of having played the Yeast games. It's definitely a game of angles and trying to get your positioning just right. The enemies are coming at you, but because there is that added attack button, it's not only a game of angles, it's also a game of timing. Yeah, If you can get that down, then combat becomes all right, although you're always at risk of kind of becoming bombarded. Another thing I really didn't like is how far on any given direction of the screen the character will get before the screen starts scrolling. Yeah, I hated the scrolling in this. It wrong-footed me constantly in this game in a way that was really unpleasant. I think that if they had kept the character a little bit more centered to the screen and had the screen scrolling before he's like, you know, um, Nasser, I believe is the character's name. Yes, Nasser, a character who is legally distinct from Adol Kristen. Uh, he's not Adol. Don't worry about it. All right. I, I won't. <laughs> so you're moving around. A lot of the game takes place in dungeons or fields where there's a bunch of enemies coming at you. At any given time, it really does feel like you're just one really bad encounter away from death. If you mistime something, the enemies can really get a drop on you. And if there's more than one enemy on the screen, it can be really hard to handle everything. Yeah, because the enemies kind of just, at least as far as I was able to get in the game, they kind of just like wander around randomly. Like they don't really target you specifically. They're just kind of on their their way and and you know they'll kind of come into contact with you and they can kind of group up on you uh just just by virtue of how they move basically that definitely changes as the game goes on enemies will come after you more aggressively later on after the first dungeon you're out in a field where there's a bunch of bug enemies and they can sort of gang up on you and again you know you're you're always just one really bad encounter one mistimed button push away from kind of getting ganged up and not being able to do much about it before they just kill you off one thing that a game does to sort of alleviate this a bit is that it lets you save your progress at any point you want it's really annoying to have to go into a menu and save every so often but at least the game gives you that so it is something that keeps you from losing a lot of progress, potentially, as long as you're, you know, kind of doing that. I was almost doing that after any significant enemy encounter. Me too. And also, you do regenerate health if you just stand in place, which is also useful because you start out with very little in the way of health. Yes. Yeah, this is an RPG, so you do level up by fighting enemies, and you do get more health and MP. But like you said, you always feel like you're just like one step away, one wrong move away from death, basically. I didn't get to any bosses. You did that, though. 
though. You you managed to get through two whole dungeons in this game, and you fought two bosses as a result of that. How did the kind of combat feel when you were doing those encounters? Oh, it felt awful. Uh, so the first boss, I lost a couple of times before I managed to best him. And I don't, I'm not even sure really how I did it. I just got to a point where he couldn't hit me anymore and for some reason wasn't moving around and, and stomping on the floor and shaking things. Also, it's worth noting, uh, Nasser does have a jump. So like you can jump over enemy projectiles. Later on in the game, you'll have to jump over pits. And in this boss fight, you could jump to prevent him from getting stunned when the boss shakes the floor. So, but in any case, I don't know why the boss just kind of stopped moving, but he happened to stop moving when I was close enough to him to hit him. And he, like, his swing couldn't quite hit me. It, it almost felt like cheating so you, a little you bit. Got him in, you got him into kind of a sweet spot. Yeah. And then the second boss that I fought, it was just purely hitting the attack button faster than it did damage to me. Like, that was yeah. completely the fight. Yeah. I honestly don't even know how else you would go about that fight. So, yeah, the boss fights, there doesn't seem to be any, like, magic trick to them. It just kind of seems to be a war of attrition. and Maybe some luck, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that the bosses get... A lot harder after the second one. There's a lot of little things about this game that just don't really quite work for me. Like, the environments are kind of drab and ugly. Even though the character sprite for Nasir is pretty good. I like the way he looks. I like the way his his green cape moves. I mean, he looks alright, but... It's, it's, it's pretty free of personality. I would say this is like really generic JRPG on the Super Nintendo. I mean, here's the thing about the design of the world. You're basically in another fantasy world, kind of like Final Fantasy see what I was kind of comparing it to was like Final Fantasy 2 feels like it was designed with Legos, where this feels like it was designed with like those big Duplo <laughs> it blocks. Does look, you know? Yeah, like everybody's got the Duplo eyes. That's true. It is an interesting point of comparison, this in Final Fantasy 2, as far as visuals, because in a lot of ways, the sprites in Final Fantasy 2 are simpler than these, but they have a lot more distinctive personality. Like there's a lot more design going on in them. That's almost in everything, though. Like all the characters that you meet in Lagoon, at least all the characters that I had met up to that point, there wasn't a whole lot of personality in any of them which also brings me to another aspect of this game that's real annoying which is the escort missions it has those so there are points in the game where other characters will join you and they're going to follow you around the map or sometimes you're going to be following them the good news is that enemies are not attacking them so you don't actually have to protect them per se but you do have to wait for them because you won't be able to leave an area until they're next to you and the AI on these characters is just abysmal. They will constantly get caught up on level oh geometry. God. It's so bad. And and again, they just move so painfully slowly. They move so much slower than your character can. And it's already kind of a plotting feeling game in a lot of ways. Like the, the this isn't a fast game by any means. So having to slow down even more. Oof, that's not great. Again, I'm going to compare this to Final Fantasy. They came out pretty close to each other, so it's kind of unavoidable, but I've been playing through Final Fantasy 2 again. And one thing I noticed about it is that I don't feel like I'm stuck just grinding for the sake of grinding, you know, like leveling up my characters just for the sake of doing it. Like it feels like it's mostly happening organically by going through the dungeons that I'm supposed to do. Lagoon does not feel like that. I often felt like I was having to like just really walk around and keep stabbing monsters so that I could level up and go fight the dungeon's boss. I would say nothing about this game really feels elegant or organic. Like, even the first bit of the game where you're going around a town and you have to hit several different plot flags 
before it will let you into the dungeon. You know, that's not an uncommon thing in Japanese RPGs of this vintage, but it feels really clumsy and overbearing here in a way that doesn't give a good first impression. And the game kind of keeps feeling like that, even once you are free to go in and out of the dungeon and explore around as as you want to. I really didn't like that starting village. It was hard for me to find my way around. Again, because everything is so big, it's just hard to get your bearings it's a problem final fantasy 2 doesn't have because when you're on the map everything is so small and that's to your benefit everything is easy to find there's some items and stuff like that that you collect there are healing items i didn't really engage with that other than like the one healing item i needed to heal somebody who was then gonna follow me back through the cave oh yeah go tell the story this is the thing that happened to me this is actually where i stopped playing the game so i found this healing item in my exploration of the dungeon uh the first dungeon you go into and then I found the guy that you need to lead out of the dungeon and you go up to him and he's like, Oh no, I'm hurt. Do you have a healing pot that you can use to heal me? I'd really appreciate it. They really like their healing pot. So I went into my menu and I found the thing and I equipped it. And then I was trying to figure out what button I needed to use to actually give it to the guy. And I just ended up using it on myself And I was like, okay, well, that's annoying. I bet that it's, like, back in my inventory now. And it wasn't. I would have had to go back out of the dungeon to the shop. And that was the point at which I was like, I don't have time for this. I got to do something else now. Yeah, there's just not a whole lot else I I can really think to talk about. Um, Most of the items I found were just, like, keys to access other areas. I didn't really use healing items or anything like that. Well, because you regenerate. Right. Except during boss fights. You cannot use magic and you cannot regenerate your health in boss fights, which sucks. So I I don't have anything else really to say about this either. Uh, The music's great. We should talk about that. The music is very, very good in this game. Uh, There's a really rockin' theme that goes over opening animation for the game. Yeah, the soundtrack is surprisingly great. The music is really the one thing I can, like, unreservedly praise about the game. Yeah, the music is the only place in which this game, I would say, excels. Everything else is alright at best. The gameplay takes a lot of getting the hang of the angles and the timing, like we were saying before, to really get good at. And the story, the characters... There's not much of anything there, really. It's just very generic fantasy stuff. The main impetus for your character doing anything is that the water in town has gotten muddy. That seems to be the stakes right. in this game. Yeah. To anybody that is like thinking of playing this game or thinking of checking it out, you're welcome to. You might have a good time doing it. But I think you'd have a much better time just playing East 1 and 2, which you can do pretty easily on a lot of platforms now. Uh, Those games are widely available, and they are so similar to this in so many key ways, but just all-around better experiences. Yeah, so I guess is it time to to talk about ranking? I think it is. I think it's time to put this one on the list. Okay, so I'm taking a look at the list here. Obviously, this doesn't go nearly as high as Final Fantasy 2. I'm looking at the other RPG on here, which is Draken at number 10. I feel like this is probably going to be an easier game for people to grasp than Draken. I would go a little lower, personally. I would go lower than Draken. Maybe... Do you think Pilot Wings is too high for this? 
I was kind of thinking like maybe between Final Fight and Pilot Wings. I don't know. What do you I think that's pretty fair. I, I mean, I think that obviously Pilot Wings is a way more like technically accomplished game than this. I also think it's not that fun. I think it's very light. Hearing you say that though, I'm I'm kind of maybe tempted to drop Lagoon maybe a little bit further. I don't even know if I would put it as high as John Madden Football. John Madden Football is a lot more successful at what it sen- sets out to do. I would say maybe True Golf Classics is an okay comparison for this, just because I do think that it's doing some things that are fine, but that I'm not really a fan of. And I think that would feel to me like the sort of technical compromises for True Golf Classics do sort of get in the way of being able to play that game as well as you'd sort of want to in a way that's not that different from the problems with like the the action combat in in Lagoon. I think I'd probably put it below Truth Golf Classics. I definitely don't think that this goes below Hyperzone. Like I think I would be more interested in playing this than Hyperzone again. I agree. And Hyperzone, aside from its wild aesthetic, doesn't really do anything that well. At least this has really good music. That soundtrack is real, real good. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of like debating like, mm, does this split the golf games or does it just go below Wiley? country club maybe it splits the golf games it might it might do that i think the music probably pushes this one above true golf classics while i just a little bit for me let's let's do that then let's say our new number 16 is going to be good old lagoon congratulations top 20 game lagoon for the super nintendo top 20 game yeah all right so that's uh that's our first game down and uh (sighs) (laughs) just remembered what we have next cue the music As you probably recognized from that music, we're talking about Home Alone, the game. Yeah, the great classic game uh, that came out like a year after the movie it was based on. Beloved movie, very successful. So I was just assuming the Super Nintendo didn't come out until 1991. Maybe they were just porting an earlier game over to the Super Nintendo just to try and get those Home Alone bucks. Yeah, right. But that's not really the case, No, the, the NES game came out in October of 1991, so it was also about a year late to the party. But also, this game isn't even a port. There are versions of Home Alone out on everything, but while the uh, NES game was, are you ready for this, was uh, developed by Bethesda. (laughs) The Super (laughs) Nintendo game, though, was developed by Imagineering, who have made a lot of licensed games, and we will definitely hear their name again. All of these games were published by THQ. None of these games are at all similar. The Super Nintendo game is, is similar to the Game Boy game, but that's it. Everything had a different Home Alone game. Yeah, in the NES game, you were tasked with collecting traps and setting them for the wet bandits that are chasing you around the house. Whereas in this game, the objective is to collect all of your family's valuables that are just strewn throughout their palatial suburban estate. This game absolutely makes me hate Kevin and his family so much. (laughs) This is literally a game about this like upper middle class jerk kid going around collecting up his family's treasure and storing them in their panic room. I'm not wrong, am I? That's the game. Yeah, that's pretty much the game. So yeah, you're collecting things like candelabras and 
just huge sacks of money as as everybody who lived out in the suburbs in the mid nineties know. You just yeah. you kept your sacks of money in your dresser. That's just what yep, you did. Yeah. Next to your single slices of cheese pizza. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so Kevin can't store too many things in his backpack at once, so every now and then you have to find a laundry chute in which to dump all of your valuables into the basement and I guess the game ends with Kevin having to run through the basement being attacked by spiders and ghosts for some reason. Sure. In order to lock the vault that's down there now. The vault that his family has in their house. Yeah, I remember that from the movie. That's my favorite scene from the movie. Hey, wet bandits, I locked the vault and I swallowed the key. So you're never going to get it. And now... I'm going to stab you because I'm a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, so this game, there's not much to this game, really. No, not at all. You you explore the house. You start out on the second floor. You have to avoid the wet bandits. You do have a couple of, I guess they're weapons, but I couldn't really figure out what you were even supposed to do with them. You have like a squirt gun and a slingshot. The weapons will stun the enemies, but you have to hit them a couple of times before it'll work. That's just like real life. You squirt somebody with a squirt gun, it's not going to do anything. You have to squirt them like a lot before it's going to stun them. You clearly do, because I didn't figure that out. There's a bunch of different little things you have to do to get different treasures. There's one place where you have to jump up and down next to a table to knock a ring off of it, so you can get that. Uh, These things are just kind of arbitrarily, you know, littered around. And yeah, once you go down from the second floor to the first floor, I couldn't see any way to get back up to the second floor. So I guess if you didn't manage to get all of the treasures there, you're kind of just boned at that point oh maybe that was my problem yeah because i could not figure out how to actually finish the level yeah i was so confused by it but i couldn't see any way to like get back upstairs once i went downstairs so surely they didn't design it that poorly but this game was also designed by the same people that did bart versus the space mutants and a bunch of other awful simpsons games so maybe they did the gameplay is real basic the mechanics of the game are poorly implemented to the fact that you can very easily soft lock yourself and even if you play the game just right this is like a 30 minute game if you know what you're doing like there's almost no content here this would have been a full price cartridge game unbelievable like i can't imagine anybody paying that much for this and being happy with it bad i don't like pretty much anything about this probably the thing that i think is the most noteworthy about this game is that when you die you do get a digitized picture of kevin screaming into the mirror and a blood curdling scream sound i think he died i think he got murdered by the wet bandits (laughs) in this one yeah yeah maybe like the the second most alarming thing i've heard in a game up to this point with the first one being the creepy guy from populace So a few other things I kind of noticed about the game. The soundtrack is, I'm not going to say impressive, but they do try to adapt the score from the movie. They also adapted some music that I recognized from the Nutcracker, which may or may not have been in the movie. I do not remember. There is a piece of music in there that is very heavily influenced, if not just straight up adapted from uh, Chuck Berry's Run Run Rudolph, which was in the movie. Yeah, they kind of just changed it enough that they probably didn't have to pay uh, like a licensing fee to to use it in the game. Yeah, John Williams' name was in the credits uh, opening the game, but Chuck Berry's was not. 
the graphics for the game look are i mean they're presentable the sprites for harry and marv look enough like their respective actors i think that the daniel stern sprite is horrifying but it does look recognizably like him the sprite for joe pesci's character when i saw the sprite i thought it was kind of strange because his eyes looked way too dreamy there's also just random yeah there's like random other other like goons that they have i feel like maybe that was supposed to be a reference to the fake 1940s gangster movie scene that they filmed for home alone that kevin's watching yeah i can't tell if this is supposed to be a retelling of the story from home alone or if this is supposed to be like some weird thing because harry and marv just talk about getting out of jail in the opening cutscene, they're like oh yeah let's go rob kevin's house he's home alone oh yeah yeah and they're so excited they're so excited to rob kevin specifically yeah so i couldn't figure out like is this supposed to be like home alone 1.5 like a weird pseudo sequel yeah Yeah. the thing is we are thinking about this game way more than anybody who worked on it so absolutely this is probably one of the longer discussions in media anywhere of the super nintendo home alone game so i think it's time to put this thing on the list get it out of here so i think this game is better than rpm racing it's functional in a way that i didn't really think rpm racing was i think home alone Uh, It's a nice middle ground in complete ineptitude and just carelessness between RPM Racing and Ultraman. I don't think this is better than Ultraman. I think this goes right at number 26, right above RPM Racing, and that is as high as it goes. I agree. You will get no argument from me. Perfect. Then uh, then that is settled. Home Alone, number 26, top 30 game. That gag is going to get real old. It is. It's going to get real old if it hasn't already. Who's to say? Who knows? Who's to say? Let's move on, oh, I guess. Please tell me the next game is better. Oh, oh. It's a little better. It's it's not this one. It's D-Force. It is D-Force. Uh, AKA Dimension Force. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about about good old D-Force here. Okay, well, this game was published by Asmic, who has a cute little pink dragon mascot who you see at the opening of the game. His name is uh, Asmic-kun. So Asmic is also listed as the developer, but they subcontracted a lot of their stuff for other companies, and that is likely the case here. I was doing a little bit of research trying to figure out who might have done that. Uh, according to Giant Bomb, there was a developer listed called ISCO, which I believe stands for Intelligence. Intelligent Systems Co., which is not the same intelligent systems as the other one people know about, who made Fire Emblem, is it? Yeah, Fire Emblem and Advance Wars and Paper Mario, I think. They're deep in with Nintendo on on a few different series, basically. Okay, yeah, this is not them. So another thing that was interesting was that further research also surfaced a company called Cream, which I believe is a Japanese studio, which is like a portmanteau of like creative something. I I can't remember now off the top of my head. What I think might have happened was that Asmic subcontracted this game to ISCO or ISCO, who then subcontracted out to Cream, which would make sense. Asmic had worked with ISCO before. Um, I managed to find a game called Veritex, which was a shooter for the Sega Master System, which they had subcontracted out to them. And then ISCO actually subcontracted that one out uh, themselves 
to a studio called Opera House. So it wouldn't be the first time that a situation like this happened. So that's kind of what I'm assuming was the case, but I, I can't find a hard verification on that. I think that's probably as good as anybody's going to do, honestly. Unfortunately, there's a lot of really shadowy, difficult to parse crediting situations with who actually made a bunch of games in this era of video games, especially, I think especially Japanese games, where you'd have a lot of uncredited developers doing the work on games. Like, we talked about Tose last week, and this is another situation where, like, yeah, somebody made this game. It was probably one of these folks, but we don't really know. Maybe someday someone will tell the story of D-Force, this very mediocre, vertically scrolling shooter, which I think is the first one of those on the system up to this point, right? I think it is. They've all been side-scrollers before this one that we've encountered. It's a game you play as, I guess, like an Apache helicopter. This is a weird game in a couple of ways. There's basically, there's two different kinds of stages in this game. There are what's called shooting stages, which are pretty much just very bog-standard vertical scrolling shmup stages where you fight through waves of enemies, you collect power-ups, and then you also have what are called exploration stages, which are pretty similar, except you don't get power-ups, and you can use a button to change the height that your your helicopter is above the ground, which gives you access to different layers of enemies to fight. And it's as accomplished with like kind of a mode 7 zoom in, zoom out, and it just feels kind of weird, like it's never really cool or fun. And the game actually gives you three different options for how to play. So there's like a main game mode, which takes you through all the stages in order. And you kind of alternate between the shooter stages and the exploration stages. Or you can opt to just play one of those types of stages. And I'm glad you can do that because I didn't actually make it past shooter stage one to play exploration stage one. And that is weird enough that I'm glad that I was able to just jump to that and play that by itself. Uh, You fought some dinosaurs in that one who all just explode when you hit them, which is weird. I don't know. There's not really a ton to actually say about this game, I don't think, beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think that its use of Mode 7 is kind of cool. Like, I actually do think that the helicopter changing altitudes in those adventure levels, or whatever they call them, is kind of a neat idea. I don't know that it's used that well, but it's kind of a cool idea. Yeah, they also have an opening sequence where you're leaving an aircraft carrier that uses Mode 7 as well. And if you get shot down, your helicopter spirals down yeah. using Mode 7 as well. I've got to say, it's cool, but it also takes just like a torturously long time. To the point where I just reset the game every time I died because that was faster than actually waiting for the death animation to play out and then starting up again. I think the game has some cool ideas, but ultimately I think this is a pretty by-the-numbers shooter, which is saying something because this is a system that doesn't even have a vertically scrolling shooter yet, and it it still just doesn't really impress, even with the Mode 7 flourishes. No, it really doesn't. And I mean, you know, it has those Mode 7 flourishes, but it also has, like, really heinous slowdown. I felt like I got hit by things much more commonly than I should have, just because of like both how big your helicopter's sprite is and by 
the minor fluctuations in the frame rate that made it just hard to get a really good feel for moving the ship around and dodging bullets and stuff. You know, the music in this is pretty good, but the music in pretty much all of the shmups that we've played has been good, so that doesn't really distinguish this one. There's just not much going on here, aside from the Mode 7 gimmick, and I don't really think it uses that all that well. Like I said, it's pretty by the numbers. You shoot down enemies, you collect power-ups, you watch your weapons just become ridiculous. It is fun, but also I just found myself losing track of enemy bullets because they looked too much like mine, and there's just so much going on, and I think that frame rate... It chugs really badly once you get, like, the multi... like, the second upgrade to, like, your your regular gun, for sure. This game was designed for the Super Nintendo. This wasn't an adaptation of an arcade game, but, like, it doesn't feel like it's got much in the way of ingenuity or really impressive craft going on here. You know, even though this is a vertically scrolling shooter, which we haven't had before, it's got kind of a high bar to clear with the other shooters on the system. Four and five, we've got UN Squadron and Darius Twin. And then down at eight and nine, we've got Gradius Three and Super R-Type. I, I don't think this even gets close. Honestly, I'm looking way down like at a shooter like Hyperzone at number 18. It did run really well, and it the its use of Mode 7 didn't get in its way. So yeah, I think this goes below Hyperzone at number 18. At 19, we've got Paperboy 2. Probably I'd put Paperboy 2 above this. It had some playfulness to it that I enjoyed. I don't know that I see much in the way of like a real personality in this one, aside from the fact that in some of the levels you fight dinosaurs and giant peacocks that blow up just like planes do. I mean, have you ever shot a peacock? Who's to say whether or not I shot a peacock? <laughs> Certainly not me. Certainly not on this recording. So, okay, so this goes below Paperboy 2. I think this goes below Super Tennis. I agree. I, I think Super Tennis was a pretty solid tennis game. So then we got Super Bases loaded at 21. How do you feel about that matchup? This might be the place where it stops going down, because I do think that Super Base is loaded. It's fine, but it is also a pretty generic baseball game. I do think that it had some issues with how hard it was to follow the game in some places, maybe worse issues as far as just base playability goes than like the stuff we were talking about with this one. I'd probably play more D-Force than I would play Super Bases Loaded, but that might just be down to the genre. What do you think? I think Super Bases Loaded is severely lacking in exploding dinosaurs. I, yeah, I think that maybe that's just going to edge out Super Bases Loaded, and, and that's going to give us a new 21. I'm, I'm good with that. All right. So you know what they say, the best D-Force is a good off-force. Off-force? Yeah. That's it's what, what I've been told. I don't even know why I said that. D-Force is not number 21. That's your new, your new number 21, folks. And wow, I wonder how many people are going to be super mad at us for having that several spaces above Super Ghouls and Ghosts at this point. That's going to be, be a, a splinter in the, the mind's eye of everybody listening to this show for a long time. Sorry, we okay. just didn't like it. Bad game. We just didn't like it. Yep. I'm sorry your game is bad. How about that? We've had a middling action RPG. We've had a really bad licensed game. We've had a pretty not great shooter but you know what it's all gonna be worth it because now we get to talk about our next game our last game for today i'm really happy about it
Super Castlevania 4. This time, we really did save the best for last on this episode. Oh, yeah. No question. This game is great, and I think it holds up fantastically in a whole bunch of different ways. We've already kind of alluded to this game a couple times. We talked about it when we talked about ActRaiser, and I think even... Did we talk about this at all when we talked about Super Ghouls and Ghosts? Yeah, I think it did, because uh, this game has a similar thing with Super Ghouls and Ghosts. I mean, the Castlevania series in general has had this, where your movements feel pretty rigid. Your character feels a little bit sluggish. The jumps are very much set. Once you've made a jump, you have to commit to it and hope that there isn't anything underneath you that's going to give you a bad day. However, there's a, a major, major fundamental difference between this game's implementation of that and something like Super Ghouls and Ghosts. And that is that the levels in this game are extremely well designed around that kind of move. Exactly. The game feels like it was built around what Simon, or in some cases Trevor, is capable of doing. Super Castlevania 4 is just great. Oh, this is a Konami game, by the way, if you didn't know that for some reason. We're kind of skipping over some basic stuff about this game, just because this is such a famous series. But basically, Konami game... Side-scrolling action, horror-themed, you are Simon Belmont, you have a whip, you are going to kill Dracula and all of his universal monster minions in his castle, and uh, you are going to do that in some lavish style in this game. As the title would suggest, this is the fourth in the Castlevania series, if we're not counting offshoots like Haunted Castle and Vampire Killer. And Kid Dracula, don't forget about Kid Dracula. Oh my god, how could I forget Kid Dracula? The original Castlevania was a, a pretty standard side-scrolling platform action game. The second game in the series was that, but it also added a lot of action RPG-ish kind of elements. You would go to towns and buy things. You could explore in a, like a non-linear way. Yeah. Castlevania 3 did away with a lot of that from Castlevania 2, but it had multiple characters that you could find throughout the game and switch to, and that would open up new power sets and new movements and things like that. Uh, Castlevania 4 doesn't have any of that. It really does kind of go back to square one with the Castlevania series, but it does it in a really cool way. It does, and it's also kind of a remake of Castlevania 1. You're playing, once again, as Simon Belmont on a differently realized version of that same original adventure and yeah it does some really cool stuff with the fact that you're just playing as the one character by giving you probably the most important major difference in in how this game plays is the whip which is versatile in this game it's not a thing i'm sure that they ever did in any other castlevania games but simon can actually whip in multiple directions that's a real game changer i think that is unique to this game actually i don't think they ever did that again and you can even kind of like just flail the whip around if you hold down the attack button and move the control pad you'll stay locked in place and the whip will move and you can do some fun stuff. You can kind of cheese enemies by sort of dangling the whip on them until they just die. Well, and there's a lot of different things you can do with it. There's been like stage exploration stuff you do where you, you whip the, uh, the whip out and attach it to hooks that you can then swing on. Later on in the game, there's some really cool things where you'll whip a thing and, and hang from it and then the stage will rotate around you. Yeah, I think it's a really bold use of the Mode 7 capability 
capabilities of the Super Nintendo, where we have talked about the visual aspect of Mode 7, and this uses it in a way in which it really affects level design and new ways to be creative with how you lay out a level. It's really, really neat. It's it's not just an amazing thing to watch, it's also an amazing thing to play through. That stuff is really cool. I, I think this game looks great and it sounds great. The graphics and music are just really kind of top tier for the Super Nintendo. The extra bits, you might say, of the Super Nintendo really just make the world of Castlevania pop. It's a surprisingly colorful game for a game that has you trudging through swamps and cemeteries and other really gloomy places. The environments are equal parts foreboding and awe-inspiring and just how beautiful they are. The uh, enemy designs, they just look fantastic. And Simon himself looks amazing. He's really well animated. He's huge. He's a really big sprite. But not too big is to, like, make the game hard to play. No, no, it's all balanced really well. Yeah, it really is just a fantastic game. It's a fantastic platformer. It is a lot of fun to play. It looks great. The music, I mean, of course the music's great. It's a Castlevania game. The Castlevania music has always been great. Uh, yeah, I don't really have anything particularly new or insightful to say about this game that hasn't already been said a bunch of times before, but it is really, really good. I think most of the weapons even are pretty much the standard weapons from original Castlevania. Yeah, you got your holy water, your daggers, your your axes, your stopwatch, all of that stuff. Still got your wall chicken? You do have your delicious wall chicken. Love that wall meat every time. Yep. Although now you can find small pieces of meat in some of the candles, which is nice. It's almost like the game is being just a little bit nicer to you as well. This game is still a, a difficult game. It feels like it's very inviting, though. Like, it wants you to get better at also, it. Also, Simon can crawl. But, you know, it, it all kind of just goes to, like, the fact that this is really just original Castlevania, but every aspect of it is is better. It looks better. It sounds better. Simon Belmont has new moves to add to his repertoire. He's never been more equipped to handle the challenges in front of him. And yeah, it's, it's just a blast to play. Uh, I think I'm ready to put it on the list if you are. Yeah, I think we can. One thing that I think we could compare this more favorably to would be ActRaiser, uh, specifically ActRaiser's side-scrolling scenes in which, you know, like Castlevania, the, the movement is kind of rigid. You have to commit to jumps, things like that. But again, like Castlevania, the game is designed around those limitations of your character, so it doesn't feel unfair. It's going to give you the tools you need to survive. You just have to learn what their limits are and how to use them. Yeah. The combat, the side-scrolling combat in Actraiser is quite similar in some ways to what is in this game, but this game is much more fleshed out. I think everything does feel just that little bit better. There's no equivalent really in Actraiser's action combat to how good the whip feels to use. The question, I guess, is whether the other stuff Actraiser has going on is something to take into consideration here. This was a thing that we talked about with Actraiser is that it does two things quite well well and putting those together makes one whole really interesting game but on their own those elements wouldn't really be quite enough to put it as high as we put it yeah neither one of those on their own would really carry this game the way that the the finished product comes together to make something really special so yeah I, i completely agree the fact that castlevania just really really nails this one thing that it's doing is that enough to put it above this cobbled together better than the sum of its parts game that ActRaiser is? And that's a tough question for me. I think maybe it does. At the end of the day, we're talking about the experience as a whole. You did play all the way through ActRaiser. One of the things that you kind of came to as a conclusion at the end of that game was that 
you had pretty much seen the whole thing. You got the whole experience of Actraiser exactly as the the developers wanted you to get it, but that when you were done with it, you were really done. Yeah, it was very satisfying, but it was it felt very finite. But with this game, because I think the the action combat is just that bit richer, I think that you could have a better repeat experience with this. I think maybe in that way this would possibly be just like a tiny notch above Actraiser. And also I think that like we can't really discount just how much of like kind of a masterpiece this is as far as the the aesthetics go. And honestly those aesthetics make me want to say maybe we need to have a conversation about Final Fantasy 2 as well. Yeah, maybe so. We talked forever about Final Fantasy 2 and all the things that are great about it. But also what that game is visually, it's like the next step up from an NES game, you know? You can see the roots there whereas with Super Castlevania 4, I think that it it is such a leap from what these kinds of games looked like on the NES. I agree with you. I think that Final Fantasy II's visuals do exactly what they need to do, but I think with Super Castlevania, they just went above and beyond. The music in both games great, so that's kind of a dead heat there. But I, I would actually say, so here's the thing that I've been noticing as I've been playing more of Final Fantasy II about the music. The music is very good. I think the thing that really makes the music great is how much of it there is and how well they use it, how they'll play play something in a certain scene to really emphasize the moment that's happening. I think on the one hand, like Castlevania might actually have like slightly better music, but that Final Fantasy II has so much of it that it uses so much better. That is a good point. But yeah, you know, I think based on the kind of arguments that we're making about the overall craft of Super Castlevania IV, this might be a new number two game. Like this is really that good. Like it's really, really just a finely made piece of work. I absolutely love Final Fantasy 2. Love the story and the characters. I love that game. But I also really, really like Castlevania 4. And while I enjoy playing Final Fantasy 2 more than Castlevania, I think I admire the artistry in Castlevania a little bit more. It, it just feels like they did so much more than they needed to to make a good Castlevania game for the Super Nintendo. No, I, I agree. Yeah, are we going to put this at number two? I think we're going to put this at number two. Okay, I think we're going to put this at number two. Oh man, and more shakeups. It's really amazing that this keeps happening. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm genuinely surprised every time that you take the measure of a game and it, it ends up being this good. I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm kind of surprised sometimes. Like, going into this, I'm not sure I would have just assumed, like, oh yeah, we're going to have games that are going to go right above and right below the two extremes on this list today, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right. Like, I'm, I'm not exactly sure that that's a, an assumption that I would have made, just given, you know, the notes that I took on these games going into it. There really is just a real solid lineup for this first year that we're going to finish up next time. So do we want to talk about what we're doing next time? Yeah, so the next episode we're doing is going to be a little different than the majority of our episodes have been. We've only got two games left for 1991, and then uh, we're going to move on to the next year. So we've got Super Baseball Simulator 1000 and Super Off-Road. And that's it for 1991. So we think what we're going to do instead of just going straight into 1992 is we're just going to talk about those two games next time. And then we're just going to kind of do like a little year-end review of 
the games that came out this first year of the Super Nintendo's life and uh, talk about some of our favorites, maybe some of our not-so-favorites. We will look back on 91 and uh, you know try to maybe draw some conclusions about it, talk about Library of the Launch Year as a whole. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for that. I think that'll be fun. That, uh, that I think, is, is going to do it for us today. We thank you all for listening and to everybody who's been with us since the beginning here. I guess we're, we're only a few episodes in, but we're already at the end of 1991. I feel like we've, we've already gone on a journey together. We really and have. Looking forward to, to continuing that journey. So until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Any Zero. And play uh, it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. For more of our content, check out honestpiranha.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the change, you filthy animal.